Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 15th, 2017, and this is episode 2004 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today because you guys wrote the show. This is a listener feedback show. To have content considered for a show like today, send the email to jack at com. Make sure the letters TSPC are in the subject line like a word, all capitalized TSPC. Tango Sierra Papa Charlie in the subject line. Then article for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack. Jack, you're a jerk. Whatever you want to say, but that will call it out and say, Hey, Jack, you jerk. This is for show material, and uh, I will take a look at what you have and consider it for the show. Here's what I have for you guys today. Charcoal cooking for newbies. Why you should have a digital estate plan. What the hell is that? Well, you'll find out when I tell you why you should have one. Dealing with lackluster garden production. How college can be free without stealing from taxpayers. Yeah, really. A family making 100000 a year is now considered low income in San Francisco. I don't know if that's news, but there is something we can glean from that that's probably not what everybody else is talking about now that this story has come out. Um, and is YouTube censoring comments? Does it have the right to? Does free speech apply on YouTube or YouTube comments? And what are the implications of that for the freedom and liberty movement? And what does calling for warning labels on avocados say about our society? And uh, if you don't know about this, you'll find out all about it in a, in a bit. And I'll tell you, it's, it's a bigger deal than I think people understand the immediate knee-jerk reaction to a problem. And uh, what that says about our society. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop bulkammo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% to of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have the battle for Fallujah and the start of ISIS from Alex Shrugged. I have NATO expands to Russia's borders from South Ben. And I have Spirit and Opportunity Land on Mars from Alex Shrugged. Notable deaths this year. Ronald Reagan, age 93, of pneumonia. Also complications from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, he was President of the United States, of course. His headstone inscription on his grave says, I know in my heart that man is good, that what is right will always eventually triumph, and there is a purpose and worth to each and every life. Good quote from a flawed, but on some levels, very good man. One of the better presidents we've had in my lifetime, even though I'm not entirely happy with everything that he did. Uh, Yasser Arafat died this year, 75, of a massive stroke. 
Theo Van Gogh, age 47, assassination filmmaker and anti-Islamic columnist, especially after 9-11. And Rodney Dangerfield died at 82, complications after surgery. Comedian headstone inscription is, there goes the neighborhood. I loved Rodney Dangerfield, I really did. This year in film, Shrek 2, the largest grossing animated film to date, but Shrek 3 will beat it, even though Shrek 3 sucked. Um, I added that last part. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban. I saw that movie because I had to at the time because my son was addicted to Harry Potter. The Passion of the Christ, the final 12 hours of the life of Jesus, a powerful film from Alex Shrug, so-so. And also The Incredibles, National Treasure, and Lenny, Lemony Stickets, A Series of Unfortunate Events. I've seen all of these movies, uh, all listed today, except for Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Just was never intrigued enough to go see that. This year in TV, Janet Jackson has a wardrobe malfunction during Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, I remember that because I was at a friend's house. Uh, I'll tell you why I have that year etched in my head in a little bit. But uh, at a friend's house, and uh, we were watching the Super Bowl together, and I didn't notice it. I kind of looked down to grab a chip or missed it. And th this, this buddy of mine goes, did you see that? He goes, I can't believe that just happened I had no uh, like what really happened until I saw the replay on the internet you know a day later uh, Dan Rather steps down from CBS News his fake news story regarding President Bush's Vietnam service gets Dan the boot hashtag fake news could have come a bit earlier it seems um, the apprentice you're fired Donald Trump assigns business tasks to contestants for the ultimate job interview as his new apprentice that was before celebrity apprentice and I actually liked the show better back then An extreme makeover home edition, rebuilding the homes of people in need. This year in music, There Goes My Life from Kenny Chesney. Love that song. My Boo from Usher and Elisa Keys. Never heard it, no interest. And Sunrise from Nora Jones. I looked that up to hear it because it sounded like it might be interesting. And uh, Nora Jones is pretty talented. Not my kind of music, but there's a little bit of it I like. There's almost a little in the background like this scratchy Billie Holiday thing going on, which is totally not, but it's there. It's Kind of cool in that way. This year in video games, Half-Life 2, Halo 2, and Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. In other news, Spaceship One reaches space. One of the largest tsunamis ever observed kills over 200,000 in Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Malaysia, Bangladesh, and India. Uh, Indonesia, I'm sorry. Suicide bombers blow up the train station in Madrid, killing 191 people. Bas separatists are blamed. Uh, and Mount St. Helens is building a dome again. It blew up. It's top 24 years earlier. All right. I'm going to read for you NATO expands to Russia's borders because I have something to say about this that I think people tend to not see when it's not them that's the one that feels threatened, okay? So this says, on March 29, NATO made its largest expansion ever when it admitted the following nations, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latva, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. This expansion has caused relations with Russia to worsen as they felt that the U.S. had promised not to expand NATO during the fall of the USSR. My take by Southpaw Ben. Russia has always been a paranoid country, so any move that could be viewed as threatening to Russian sovereignty is almost always viewed as such. Various sources agree that the U.S. has never promised not to expand NATO. It has simply given them assurance about it. To me, this sounds like the exact same thing, but apparently to policy expert, there's a world of difference between them. Leave it to politics to make two words that mean the same thing mean something different, or as Jack said last week, make two words with entirely different meanings mean the exact same thing. I agree with that, but I, I have a different take on this as Russia being paranoid. I just want to you to imagine something. 
I want you to imagine if you're old enough to remember something called the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact was the counter to NATO. So all of the nations that were occupied or controlled by or highly influenced by the USSR were part of the Warsaw Pact in Europe. And we had NATO on one side and the Warsaw Pact on the other. I want you to take yourself back to about, let's say, 1985, when we still had, you know, all the fingers just a couple inches from the nuclear buttons, or at least that's how it seemed to be. And I'd like you to imagine that in 1985, let's say, oh, I don't know, Mexico, uh, Belize, uh, and uh, a few other Central American nations and a few of the islands in the uh, Caribbean all said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to join the Warsaw Pact. And the, the, the border with Mexico became a border with an organization that was specifically designed to resist or uh, oppose or even possibly attack United States and the United States interests around the world. Do you think we would be paranoid if we said, hey, 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 what are you doing? That's our border right there. What are you doing? Well, this is what happened to Russia in 2004. If you pull a map out and look at these nations again, you'll see a lot of them are right on the, the border with Russia. Again, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. And not only some of these are maybe not quite on the border, but they border the nations that are on the border that also joined. So that this, this whole Russian-Europe border all of a sudden is looking down the barrel of nations aligned underneath NATO. Now, should they have done it? Should they not have done it? I don't know. I think a sovereign nation can decide who it does and who it doesn't align itself with. You know, I, I think that's how it works. So um, does the U.S. get to decide if somebody gets into NATO? And on a lot of levels, yeah. But does that mean the U.S. decided to expand NATO, or does that mean these nations said, hey, we want to be part of this thing? But either way, I think you could see Russia's point. And I just think that a lot of times we talk about Russia or other nations that they that you know they're they are in opposition to what we're doing. And I think it's important that once in a while, just once in a freaking while, we say to ourselves, what if we substituted the things that are going on with nations that are on the border of the United States or United States territories and said, well, what if Russia or China was doing it? What if China formed a strategic alliance with Mexico that specifically noted that any aggression on Mexico or anything that, that threatened Mexico in any way was a, a direct assault or attack on China as well, and Mexico was reciprocating that agreement. We had the new China-Mex alliance. And wouldn't you really feel kind of shitty if all of a sudden Canada said, hey, we want to be part of that too? And that we had multiple borders with nations now aligned with a nation that doesn't have, you know, is, is China an enemy? I don't think China is an enemy. I think Trump got something right when he refers to them as a competitor in the modern world. But don't you think we might take notice when a, 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 a nation that's not currently a nuclear power or major uh, military power, but is on our borders all of a sudden aligned with a major military and nuclear power? What if it was Russia, China, and Mexico? Do you think we might be shitting our pants a little bit about what's going on? Do you think we might have something to say about it? And we just never apply this litmus test. And I want you to think about that when we get to the song of the day at the end of today's show. 
And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. This question comes in from J.D. J.D. says, question for Jack. I know this is going to sound dumb, but question, Jack, how do you cook over charcoal? Additional information, I've only ever cooked over propane. Some campfire cooking, both with good results. The total of my experience with charcoal is memories of my grandfather lighting charcoal and waiting for briquettes to ash over and turn white that I quickly burnt my hand on because I was a hard-headed boy who didn't listen to the warning of that will burn you. And my total ex- a-, a few times I have tried to cook over charcoal, I have burnt crusty food raw most of the way through, ending up trying to add more charcoal briquettes to finish the job, finally giving in and just using the oven in the house. In this case, my search of YouTube has been frustrating without any good basic instruction on how to set up and prepare Proper charcoal, grill fire for cooking, just basic burgers and franks. Uh, you have a way of teaching that works for me, so if you could explain this in a sure, simple process, or even make a YouTube video to go along with your explanation, that would be greatly appreciated. Things I would like to know. Building a proper charcoal fire. When briquettes are ready to cook over, and any basic information you feel is beneficial. Thank you for all you do, Jack. Jerry in West Virginia. Okay, Jerry, this is not a dumb question. I'm going I'm to say something that's going to make anybody that's had... Uh, familiar problems with charcoal or not been able to do it well, or you just haven't bothered trying because you have gas and it works and you're just not sure, feel better. I was invited to a home one time, and as my custom, I don't interfere with people's shit unless they ask me. So I didn't say a word about this. But three grown men who fancy themselves outdoor types and pretty much are fishing, hunting, stuff like that, uh, decided they were going to work together to cook dinner. And they were cooking burgers, and dogs. And they had a pretty big charcoal grill, and uh, they dumped an entire bag, fairly large bag, of Kingsford briquettes into it, soaked it down with lighter fluid, and set it on fire. And they did let it pretty much burn down. But you can imagine an entire bag, fairly large charcoal grill, every square inch of the bottom is now covered with blazing hot charcoal. They proceeded to burn the hot dogs. The burgers, of course, burned even worse, flared up. They had trouble with it, etc. Now, this could have all been mitigated by using less charcoal, lighting your fire, and keeping charcoal to one side and cool areas without charcoal to the other. This is, this is the most basic thing that you can do. And when, when you wait for coals to ash over, I mean completely ashed over, And one of the other things that you can really do to help with this is make your pile, and I'm going to do a video on this. I never really realized this was an issue for people. And, and I'm going to say there's, there's, there's three medians that you can cook on in a, a grill besides gas. So I'm talking about a grill you set something on fire with. And that would be briquette charcoal, lump charcoal, uh, and uh, hardwood. 
And you are absolutely right to start with brick charcoal because the, the other two will burn hotter. There's some real advantages to them, but you will do better to go with briquettes first and develop your system because there's more potential for flare-ups and with higher heat comes less forgiveness. Okay, So the basic thing that you want to do is you make a fairly steep pile And I'm all for people that want to get a chimney and put briquettes in there and put newspaper underneath it and light it and do it completely without any chemicals. And if you want to do that, God bless you. And I'll even give you a tip that makes it a little bit better. Put a little bit of vegetable oil or peanut oil or something like that on your newspaper. You create a little bit of a grease fire and you get a little bit more success with your charcoal chimneys. I use lighter fluid, and I know that the purists will go, oh, God, you can taste it. No, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. And if you can, then you should be a sommelier somewhere telling people what kind of dirt grapes were, were grown in or some shit. Uh, but normal, pe normal people, no, you can't. So I believe in the words of Stephen Harris of better living through chemistry. So what I do is I build about half my pile, and I squirt it with a gentle coating of um, lighter fluid. I then finish my pile and give it another coating of lighter fluid and immediately I light it and I let it burn. I let it burn with the lid off, the vents wide open, the top open, the grill top off. I just let it burn in a great big fire and it will. this is where you got to like give some self-control. It will blaze up really high and it will fall down and it will look like it's almost not burning at all. If you've used quality charcoal and you've given it enough lighter fluid, just leave it alone. It will be fine. It will start to burn a little bit more and it will begin to ash over. When it looks mostly ashed over, take something. I usually use a garden trowel um, because it's just long-handled and easy to do and it won't catch on fire. Also, the little garden things look like a little hose. Those work good. And spread your charcoal out so it's not big and piled up anymore, you'll notice that a lot of the charcoal is still black. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Do not spread out over the entire surface of the grill. Leave somewhere between one quarter to half. I like about a third of the grill with no charcoal at all. Okay? No charcoal at all. That's a cool place where you can rescue meat too or you can cook with indirect heat. Another option and I have become really a fan of this, is to buy yourself um, the, uh, what the heck's the thing called now? It used to be the Smokinator, but I've switched over to the uh, Slow and Sear. I'll put a link to my review of the Slow and Sear in the show notes for you. And instead of doing your, your smoking with it, you just you know put your charcoal in the Slow and Sear, light it up, and that controls where your hot zone is, and then you've got various zones of heat as you get closer and closer to it. If you're using a grill like the Weber Kettle or any grill with an arched top, which is what I prefer, and I'll explain why here, you actually have multiple hot zones that are not in places you would think. The heat goes across the top of the grill, and you get radiant heat from the top down. So your coolest spot on a Weber grill where you have a fire off to one side is going to be toward the center and away from the heat. You'll actually get a lot of heat all around the edges with a hot fire as the heat goes up the top of the grill and radiates back down and actually bakes from above like a broiler, sort of, in your oven. 
Okay, With this knowledge, your life gets easier because we can put meat over the hot area, we can sear it, and we can back it off, and we can move it to whatever part of the grill gets us cooking at the speed that we want to cook. I really recommend an instant read thermometer, especially for steaks, so that you don't overcook them or freak out about undercooking them. I'll put a link to my favorite instant read thermometer. But that's going to give you 90% of your life getting better. A hot zone and a cool zone, making sure the fire is well ashed over, And there's, you can get into whole, I mean, there are so many techniques and so much to learn and, and so many different types of grills. I mean, I really love, I watch Guy Fieri, Guy Fieri and, uh, or Fieri, whatever the hell his name is, the, the blonde psycho dude, right? Awesome cook. He's got this outdoor kitchen I would kill for. It's just amazing. He's got one of those Argentine-style grills um, with the, the, the grills are actually thick. As far as they're wide, I guess is the right way. And they're shaped in a V. And they slightly angle forward so that as, as grease falls down, most of it doesn't go into the coals. And it goes into that channel and it channels down and away. And it's got a big crank. And you can lower it way down and get super hot on the coals or bring it way up for, for heavy indirect, uh, you know, for way, way, way indirect without covering it. That's cool. But I can make the same thing happen with my Weber kettle, kettle grill. And, and, and that's what it comes down to is having the zones and knowing where the zones are. And a big thing is kind of building a mental map. That when I have a fire here, this is where my hottest parts are, my coolest parts, etc. And just play with it. With hot dogs, the best thing to do with hot dogs is you have your hot fire and cook them a few at a time. And just kind of get them to where they get that nice look to the outside of them and move them off indirect. And, and keep doing it until they're all done and all indirect. Cover it, let the indirect heat, make sure they're all warm through and you're good. Hamburgers. <sighs> Hamburgers are actually challenging. They're more challenging in some ways on a grill uh then uh steak or pork chops or chicken because they can stick and they can fall apart and they can be a pain in the ass. Good quality meat, everybody loves 80/20 for making burgers because there's lots of grease and then there's more flavor if there's more fat. Okay, and 90/10 is actually really easy to cook with on a grill, but if you don't really pay attention, you could dry your burgers out. So, compromise. 85/15 for your ground meat on your on your burgers on the grill. Using a little bit of breadcrumb as a binder in your in your burger mix is a good way, especially to start developing a little bit of skill with that. And when I say a little bit, I don't know. I'm talking about, you know, to a pound of meat, two pinches. Yes, now you've added carbohydrate to something that didn't have it before, but I think you'll find that you'll get a pretty good result and you'll get a little bit better crusting on the outside of the burger. I also like to use a little bit of salt and pepper and some garlic in my burger mix, but not a lot. You can always add more, but you can't take it out. Um, cook overheat, uh, but let your, your coals really be burned down perfectly before you put a burger on. Get it cooked on both sides, flip it, and bring it just off the heat. So you're kind of your hot zone toward the center or toward the edges, like close and then out toward the edges of your kettle. You'll get much better results that way. If you're making a lot of food, just be prepared to kind of go in a conveyor line type situation, moving stuff as it's done to the, the coolest part of the grill and cooking covered and warming because it'll have the most amount of time to finish on the inside. Um, I think that one of the best things you can start learning to cook over charcoal with is chicken. It has its own unique challenges. It definitely gets flare-ups, but once you master chicken, you can pretty much do anything. And you do a good rub on your chicken, let it be nice and dry before it goes on the grill, go over the heat, get your get your chicken seared, start cooking it with the side down that has the least amount of skin, so if, like, if it's a breast, you'll put the hollow part down first, 
That'll let you know if you've got your fire too hot. You can let your fire come down before you go ahead and sear off your, your skin. Um, just get a little bit of, on the skin, just a little bit of uh, markings. Come off onto your cooler side of the grill and cook covered low and slow. And give it time. And if you don't try to make your skin on chicken crispy while your chicken's raw, okay? Cook, get a little bit of markings on the skin, a little bit of heat going through it. Move it off, cook indirect. If you want to crisp it up, do it at the end. As far as adding more charcoal, it's better not to do that because it's kind of like adding mix to a cake. Now, if you're smoking or something like that, it's a little bit easier to get away with, but that new charcoal is kind of really heating up fast. So learning the timeline of your cook uh, and, and how long it takes for the coals to be ready so that the meat is ready to go on when the coals are ready and how long you have after that so you know how much you can get out of a given batch uh, is, is a better idea. If you need to add charcoal, the best thing to do is get the food off the grill Add charcoal, treat it like a brand new fire. It'll go quicker for you because you got coals to work with. Give it a bit of a mix to get the hot coals mixed in with the new coals. Get it ready to go and start all over again with your next batch of food. There is no shame whatsoever in some food that's not going to finish on the grill being wrapped up in foil and finished in an oven. It's called the Texas Cheat with Brisket. It's something I do all the time, though, with steaks and burgers and chops and stuff like that. I seldom, if ever, have to do it. It's kind of a save the day. We didn't have as much charcoal as we thought we had or something like that. Again, I know I'll hear from purists today that say, that, oh, I can't believe you use charcoal lighting fluid. Again, if you want to use a chimney, go ahead. Again, I'm back to better living through chemistry, and I can't taste a damn bit of difference between a burger or a steak or a chop or a piece of chicken cooked over charcoal that was started with lighter fluid versus one that was started in a, a chimney. I just can't. I think it's a bunch of bullshit, and it's used to sell more stuff than you need. Uh, the, the converse, though, is once you buy the chimney, that's all you need. Um, but you still got to find newspaper, which that's probably not good for you, whatever's in newspaper you're burning into your stuff you're cooking with. And uh, that's getting harder and harder to find. A paper towel just doesn't do a real good job in my experience. So those are my thoughts on that. If there's enough interest, I'll do another show on grilling. I've done them before, but I'll do one all on charcoal grilling. Uh, let me know if you guys would be interested in that. If there's enough interest, maybe we'll do it next week or the week after. Let's go on and take another one. This next one... Um Pretty interesting, and it's something we've touched on before, but maybe not quite at this this way. Paul says, do real survivalists have a digital estate plan? Maybe we should. The, this article expressed a thought I have had but haven't examined. It's a great idea to have a plan in place to access your digital life and instructions on what to do with it. It gives concrete ideas on how to build that plan. What will happen to TSP when you can no longer manage it, Jack? It's a large library of useful knowledge. Um, let me answer that first and say we do have a basic continuity plan, but maybe it should be strengthened. Uh, but there are way more people than one additional person that knows uh, how to access the server and all of the data that's on it. My wife knows what I want done. Uh, and like I said, maybe I should strengthen that. This makes me think about it. But it wouldn't just be like if I got hit by a truck tomorrow, it would all go away. It would still be here. And it would still be a situation where there wouldn't be new content any, any, anymore, but those who felt that the legacy was worth preserving could continue to use the MSB with the benefits that are in it. Um, Dorothy would always have the option of maybe finding somebody who wanted to continue to look for new members, but there would be no new content for me because I'd be gone. I'd be gone. But, you know, if we look at it today, two, 2004 episodes, I think that, uh, I think that I've worked hard to create a lasting legacy and I hope it remains long after I'm gone. All right. So, let me read this article to you. I'm going to read just the uh, the intro and then the four bullet points that go with it, and you can read the rest if you want. I'll give you some commentary on it. 
your digital estate plan, four things you need to know. Um, one of the more difficult realities of estate planning is recognizing that while you will be able to provide for your family after you're gone, your presence will be missed. But in fact, thanks to digital identity, your Facebook page will probably carry on after you're gone. So will your email accounts and a myriad of other online profiles you've created over the years. Deciding what to do with your digital assets is a new frontier of estate planning, an increasingly vital component to a successful plan. According to Joe Schopenmeyer, Uh, Senior Vice President and Trust Advisor Team at Northern Trust, here are four things your digital executor will need to help ensure management of your online afterlife in accordance with your wishes. One, a comprehensive list of passwords for all your online accounts. And it mentions some password management programs like 1Password, Dashlane, and LastPass. Uh, I use a program called RoboForm, and I am very pleased with it. I've been using it for years. And once something that, this is the downside. Once somebody has access to your RoboForm, well, they have access to every password, to every account that you have, which means you need to keep it secure. But to me, the benefits outweigh the risks, and you'd have to actually hack my computer before you'd then have to hack my RoboForm. So... I'm not too worried about that, and you definitely want to use complex passwords in this world. Well, with RoboForm, you can use extremely complex passwords and not worry about not being able to remember them because RoboForm will remember them for you. So it's, it's actually my preferred uh, password tool, and I'll put a link in the show notes where you can uh, learn more about RoboForm if you want to. But definitely, yes, I would agree with that, and having a hard copy maybe of at least the ones that are the most critical things like a Facebook page. Even if you're not a business person, you know, your Facebook account is how people know you and you might have, you know, uh, someone that wants to take up your legacy in life and, and, and do things like thank people who actually keep wishing you a good birthday after you're gone. Um, some of the people I've lost, it's been very heartwarming to me to notice that on that person's birthday there'll be hundreds of birthday wishes and not by idiots that don't know. Because uh, I've seen that, too, where people are like, happy birthday. The guy's been dead four years, you know. But seeing people, I still miss you, I still think about you, things like that. That legacy and people being able to go up again and see interactions, I think that's very important. And it might be that your wife or your husband or your brother or your sister or your cousin or whoever might want to be able to, on those certain days, say, I know Hal's thinking of you guys, for instance, my buddy Hal uh, is, is one of the persons that comes to mind. So I think that's a good thing. And then, obviously, if it's business-related, that social media presence is a huge part of the business and a huge part of the social capital that business has. So it's important. Next, access to your list. Um, so this is like, you know, your email list and all of the stuff that we just talked about. Uh, somebody's going to have to be able to have access to that. I think that's pretty obvious why that would be the case. Um, but it's... It's really the case that like things like email lists and things like that are the lifeblood of online business. So if anything's going to be done with your business after you're gone, that's, that's your customer database. And, and it, it needs to be looked at that way. The authority to act on your behalf. Now, this is something that I'm probably weak on. I haven't like set up explicit permissions for certain people to do certain things. And, and that's probably really important. And knowledge of your wishes And I think my basic wishes are understood, but maybe being more specific, because it's amazing when you sit down in estate planning and you start saying, well, what if? What if leads to a lot of things you never really think of, because, well, let's, we don't want to think about being gone. But, you know, well, what if um, your spouse wants to sell your business? Is that okay with you? If so, are there certain people that, or certain things that should never be sold to? Or is there some piece of it that should be retained? 
uh, or they just don't want that done. That would be one example. Um, do you want your social media accounts to remain online? Some people may actually prefer that I, I want my Facebook page deleted. When I'm gone, I want to. I don't understand that, but I can understand that some people might. And I can also understand the, the, the reluctance of uh, um, an heir to do it. But maybe they make it private or something like that. I don't know, right? So I think knowing what you want, what do you want done with your business? What do you want done uh, with all the data that you have? Do you want some of it to go somewhere? Some of us have huge amounts of data for things that are like things we've written or things like that that we've never published. Do you want that released at that point? There's, you know, not digitally, but my understanding from talking to Bill Mollison's grandson is that he had this huge, like, room just full of writings, textual writings that were never published. And they were even, you know, uh, two years before Bill passed away, like, well, what do we do with all this? And I'm like, you have to publish it. And what does Bill want? Well, we, no one can ask now. I hope they know. You know, I mean, th these are important things. So I think that asset planning, estate planning things are definitely survival topics because part of what we do as, as members of families is ensure the survival of the family uh, when we're gone or we're no longer capable. What if it's not, you're not dead but you have some kind of traumatic brain injury or something um, that you might be able to recover from? Well, then your wishes might be different than if you're flat out dead or a vegetable for the rest of your life. And I think we do a pretty good job as we get older and a little bit more mature and a little more responsible of estate planning. But we have to understand something, that a lot of the people that you would do, an attorney you would do your estate planning with, do not even have frame of reference or context to this digital side of things. So it's it's certainly something worth considering, and I appreciate Paul for bringing it to my attention. And I'm sure it's going to save somebody or somebody's family some grief in the future that we've covered it. And you can take a look at the article, and while it's not the end-all, be-all, it's a great starting point. Thanks, Paul, for sending that one in. Um, this one, I've, I, I keep getting this, and I, I'm going to cover it again. But for those that have heard me talk about this before and referenced my article before, um, you know, obviously... People still want to know, so that's why. And I do think I need to redo the article and 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 put it on TSP instead of just the Nine Mile Farm site and add some things to it like mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, but it, it, this is from Chris, and Chris says, Hey, Jack, I'm wondering what recommendations you would use in your veggie garden. I have a small patch, a small veggie garden that has had very hit and miss on production. Mainly I've had horrible pepper production and would like to see that go up. Otherwise, I'm mainly growing tomatoes, kohlrabi, radish, salad greens, and a few other basics. Thanks, Chris in Minnesota. Oh, and that bottle of pepper mead will be sent soon. Well, good, man. I love mead. Anybody else send me mead to sample? I can do it. And if you need a place to send it to, just check the Nine Mile Farm website. You can find a mailing address right there where it says contact us. That's ninemile.farm. Okay, so here we go. The primary reason that people have problem with their vegetable gardens is a lack of fertility and micronutrients. That, that, that's what it almost inevitably always comes down to. Uh, then the other options are uh, not enough water or too much water. So let's, because I don't really cover the watering thing in the article, let's, let's cover that first. If you water plants heavily every day, um, and you don't need to, because some places you almost have to to get them through, um, to where the soil is sopping wet, they will tend to do poorly. Um, plants are not meant to do that. And if you do not water them frequently enough, where your plants are looking stressed in the afternoon, you need to increase your watering regimen. 
But more people do pro do create problems for themselves in their garden by overwatering rather than underwatering. And if you can do it, if you're lucky, I can't. I definitely recommend drip irrigation. And if there's any way that you can employ it, uh, wicking bed construction, including in-ground wicking beds, are the way to go. Both of those are very, very preferable because you're going to have a lot less fungus problems because you're going to have a lot less wet tops to your plants. And that's better all around. You can also water at the wrong time of the day. Uh, it's very difficult to not go out and water when your plants are really sad looking at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But in general, what you need to do is figure out how to make that not happen. Because when you water plants, especially if they get wet in the heat, your little little water droplets can act like little magnifying lenses and burn your plants and scorch your plants. So if you have to water during the middle of the day because you've forgotten and things are looking really sad, then you need to water underneath and get as little water on the plants as possible. So I'm just going to start with that. Um, in the end, I think what happens is a lot of people that want to do things the natural way, which is great, don't understand that there's a basic biochemistry and that plants can become stunted, and then even when you do things right, it's hard to turn them around. Um, so what happens is people want to get a good start, so they get their garden all set up. Maybe they even mulch it with compost and mulch, and they turn in some amendments and stuff like that, but they don't provide any direct fertility. They then plant into this garden, and it's cold. It's not so cold that your plants will die, but it's cold that the soil's cold. And all the little microbes and things in the soil that make all of that fertility available are asleep, or they're very inactive. Think about it like when you wake your 14-year-old kid up on a summer's day where there's no school and there's no activities. He stayed up with his friends till 3 o'clock in the morning watching TV and rotting his mind. It's now 11.30 in the morning, and he doesn't really want to get going. And you have to kick him in the ass to get him to move. Okay. Unfortunately for your soil microbes, the only thing that will kick them in the ass and get them to really start moving is warmer soil temperatures. Now, there's things you can do that, but I think it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. All I'm trying to get across is you can have the best soil in the world, And if it's too cool, you still may need a direct influx of at least your primary nutrients of NPK or fertilizer. I believe in using organic only, but immediately available. My favorite organic fertilizer is Dr. Earth 1014 Premium Gold All-Purpose Fertilizer. It's a 4-4-4, meaning it's balanced, meaning you're getting the exact same amount of each of your main nutrients. Again, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. That particular product is a liquid. I have actually gotten to be very, very in love with the solid version of that for fertilization for most of the year. But I like the liquid in the first two feedings, which I want to feed when the plant goes in the ground. And two weeks later, whether it looks like it needs it or not, because it's cheap to do in a small vegetable garden and it can't hurt. Okay? The other thing is I am a huge believer in Garrett Juice Plus from the Dirt Doctor and doing that with a foliar feed. Um, this is made with compost tea uh, and uh, beneficial microorganisms, apple cider vinegar, molasses, some dehydrated seaweed, liquid fish, and water. And I use it per the instructions. I put it in a sprayer, and I spray my plants when I put them out. I spray them every two weeks whether they look like they need it or not because it's cheap, it works, and it can't hurt. I want to do my spraying with Garrett Juice and anything else that I'm doing a foliar feed at in the evening. That's my favorite time to do it. When the sun is almost down, the plants are in shade, 
The air is getting cooler. I prefer that to morning, but I will do morning as well. The thing about morning is a lot of times plants will have dew on them, and we're very quickly going to go into hot weather, where if we do it in the evening, the plants are going to rest all through the night and have plenty of time to take that stuff up. Um, then we're going to move into our micronutrients. Now, rock minerals, green sand, amazite, all of this stuff is great for minerals. But again, I want to get across to you that until the biology in the soil is awake and strong, the nutrients can be there and the plants can't get them. A plant can't take its root, stick it on a piece of rock mineral, and all by itself pull magnesium or calcium or iron or zinc out of that rock, even if it's there. It can't do it. It has to provide an exudate. That exudate attracts soil microorganism. That soil microorganism wants that exudate, and it either craps out the zinc or the iron or the manganese or whatever it is from its normal diet, or the plant basically holds it hostage in some little micro world we really don't understand yet and basically says, you like that? Mm-hmm. You do? Yeah. I need some zinc. Get me some zinc. Get me some zinc. I'll give you some more. And there's a, a natural exchange. We most prominently see this type of biological exchange with uh, soil uh, fungus that bond with legumes and allow legumes to fix nitrogen, okay? So it's the same type of thing. But all these other organisms and nutrients, etc., cetera, uh, also follow this path with exchange of exudates with the plants in return. So what's an exudate? It's a little oozy-goozy thing. It's basically sugar and carbohydrate and a little bit of fat. It's basically cakes and cookies, The plants give cakes and cookies to the soil microbes, and the soil microbes give the plants energy or, or nutrient, or what, I'm sorry, nutrient, okay? Now, here's the thing. In order for the plant to make the exudate, the plant has to be healthy. It has to have more than it needs of some things, and it just, I need a little zinc, I need a little boron, I need a little whatever, okay? So what we need is a healthy, healthy happy plant. So we've already given it the NPK, and we've given it some fertility and some biological activity, and we're feeding the soil organisms with the liquid, uh, with the liquid uh, uh, molasses, which is you know getting into our soil. Maybe we're going to do a drench uh, of that in addition to all this, but we're definitely getting some there with the garret juice. Um, but now we're going to address the two or the four micronutrients that are most often our deficiencies. They're calcium and magnesium. Don't have to write any of this down. I have a link to the article. All of this is there and linked to. Hydroorganics, earth juice, CalMag plant food. Why calcium and magnesium together? Calcium and magnesium are two of the elements that the plant can't use one if the other one's not there with it. Not only do they have to have everything I just talked about, but it has to have calcium and magnesium together. And they're most the most often uh, micronutrients other than NPK that are missing. So we're going to use that according to the instructions on the label. And we're going to use a product for iron and zinc. Liquinox Iron and Zinc Chelated Solution. Chelated means it is immediately available. If we're doing that, our plants are going to do well. Maybe not as good as they're capable of, but they're going to do well long enough to get the soil biology doing the rest of the work for us. We are going to use two things in our soil, though, and we're going to apply it at the rates that I give in my article. One is azomite, and the other is green sand. That's going to give us all the micronutrients plus the ones that we're supplementing. As we go into to future, um, future seasons, 
We may not need the iron and zinc, and we may not need the calcium and magnesium. We're going to look for any signs of chlorosis. That's where the leaves start to turn yellow. And they, I bet your peppers are showing signs of chlorosis. They're yellow and unhappy and not doing well. And what does everybody say? You never feed peppers. If you feed peppers, they grow so strong and so healthy that they don't produce any fruit. They have to be a little bullshit. I got video of my place in Arkansas with freaking pepper plants. Pepper plants, five feet freaking tall. And your branch comes off of them, and there's freaking 10 pounds of jalapenos on one branch that fell off in a rainstorm because the peppers got so heavy when the plant took the water up, the branch broke off. It can be done. You're probably you're not going to do it with this regimen. Fertilize, 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 fertilize. Just use organic fertilizers. Follow this. And then, to me, the thing that I've come up on the last couple of years that has pushed everything over the edge is a mycorrhizal fungi uh, inoculation. And I'll put a link to my review of the, of the, the mycorrhizal fungi product that I recommend. And just, you know, a half a teaspoon in the hole when you set your plants. Or if you're planting something like beans or something, you're going to direct seed, you cut your furrow and you just sprinkle. Like, get a, a salt shaker, just a cheap salt shaker. Put some of this stuff in it and just put a sprinkling in the furrow before you drop your seeds in. And this year I've trialed the mycorrhizal fungi using... All the other stuff, I'm actually not using the zinc and the calcium and magnesium and iron because I haven't seen any need for it uh, with, the, with the system we have set up. But I'm using the organic fertilizer, the Garrett juice, and the liquid kelp. I miss liquid kelp. So liquid kelp seaweed is another thing that I've added, and I will put a link to that as well in, in today's show notes, my review of that product. Add that to the regiment that's in my article. But... In two beds, side by side, growing basically the same types of vegetables, with the same soil mix, same fertilizer, everything, but one got inoculated with fungi and one did not, the difference is night and day. And the other one's good, just this one's better. Those are the amendments I recommend, and I think when people are afraid to use them, because I want to do everything naturally, everything I've given you is natural and organic, every single thing, and you use less year after year after year, but you've got to build up the soil biology. And here's the big thing will happen. People will go out and buy a couple yards of compost, and they'll till that into their soil. Or they'll make up Mel's mix for the you know square, root, square foot gardening or whatever. Or they'll, they'll, they'll till in a bunch of organic. And their soil looks beautiful, but it's not alive yet. It has not had a chance to build up the beneficial nematodes and to build up the, all the little organisms, build up that soil food web. It could be that the compost you got was went anaerobic, or got too hot during its production, and therefore it has uh, biological life in it that's not great, like the bad guys. And you can rectify that over time, but we've got to get healthy systems going for that to happen. So don't be afraid to use this stuff. None of it's that expensive, and you'll feel so much better at the end of the season when everything's worked, and then you can say, well, I don't think I need this anymore. And when you use amendments to your, your garden, like azomite and green sand, you know, that stuff lasts for years and years and years. It doesn't go away unless something, you know, you have some kind of major erosion problem and lose actual soil or something. Uh, that stuff, a teaspoon of green sand can provide, you know, a plant with all it needs for longer than that plant will ever live. So those are permanent, your rock minerals and green sands and stuff like that. And then, you know, again, you look at garret juice, you buy a gallon of that stuff for about 30 bucks, and to make a gallon, Use two tablespoons. You, when you start thinking, and I use more than that. I use probably, I use like two big lugs. So I'm probably using like six tablespoons. Because you, you, Unless you really overdo it, you can't overdo it. Man, a gallon easily lasts me a season. Easy. 
and, and it's not expensive when you look at it that way at all. And that, that, that foliar feed in the evenings, man, that supercharges those plants. If you look at videos of my plants from this year, the green is like stupid green. It's ridiculous. And that's what it is. It's that nighttime foliar feeding and that good quality soil feeding and that, that, that mycorrhizal fungi extending that net, that mycorrhizal net. So that's what I'd recommend that you do. And I think if you do that, everything will turn around for you. So this, this next one I actually um, saw on Facebook. A lot of you guys were sharing it. I decided to, uh, to, to take it up and, and bring it to you. Um, it's on a blog called Liberty Lowell and uh, their Liberty blog. And it's an open letter to Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos on how to actually make college free, specifically a two-year degree, your associate's degree, which if you look at it from a, a perspective of, of what it was sold to us as from the Obama administration, which this guy says, well, Obama never intended to do this in the first place. It was all bullshit to make the Republicans look bad, or he would have proposed it when he had a majority in the House and the Senate, which is kind of true, right? But um, the, the, the point would be that you basically cut the cost of college in half. <clears throat> a person could ob obtain their first two years of college, could then go on and complete their two years uh, at paid university, would then only pay half for their total degree if all four years of school costs about the same. And as people get older, a little more advanced in their degrees, uh, they tend to move out of government, or I'm sorry, uh, campus housing and things like that and live on their own, et cetera. And that actually can save costs as well. So that was the premise. Well, what if we could do that and like not rob taxpayers to pay for it? So what they want to do right now is, <clears throat> The, the, the Obama proposal, which, was, again, I agree with this guy, was never meant to actually do anything except be a political hot potato that, like, you know, the, 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 the Democrats would be like, we're for this, but we can't because the Republicans have the House and the Senate. You know, it was supposed to influence the election. It didn't work, but that's what it was supposed to. I'd say it did. I'd say it did drive a lot of votes. It just wasn't enough to get the job done so that uh, Hillary could uh, win the presidency. But <clears throat> this is <clears throat> this is the basic premise that, We could use uh, mock or m uh, massive online um, courses, more accurately, massive open online courses uh, that many colleges have available now. They simply, you know, video uh, professor professors' lectures uh, throughout a course, and well, the, the guy's going to give the same lectures every year over and over and over again. And if it was good enough to pass, you know, English 101 or whatever this year, it's good enough to pass it next year. So they take these and they make them available as downloads, and more and more colleges are actually accepting uh, credit hours for people that take these courses and then complete an exam and say they've proven out their ability to, or they've just completed the coursework or whatever. They say, yeah, we'll, we'll take that, and that, that, that's one course you don't have to do. Well, what if this was more formal? What if this was the model for people that want to get those first two years knocked out? Instead of going to community college, which actually costs a lot more than you think it does, because the reason it's so quote-unquote affordable is because taxpayers are largely fitting a huge part of the bill. And the concept of making it free is going to just make it more expensive. And, and another point that this gentleman that wrote this, and I'm not reading the article because it's very long and it reads very academic, it's very well done and therefore boring to listen to somebody read. Um is that the schools have continued... Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. The, the schools have been continuously raising the cost of tuition because students know they can get loans and they'll just borrow more money. So there's literally no incentive at this point for colleges to cut costs or improve efficiencies or do anything like that. Because whenever they have a budget shortfall, they just raise tuition. And when they raise tuition, students borrow more money and because of federal student loans, they can get it. 
And people are able to borrow $150,000 for a college education that couldn't borrow $15,000 to buy a used car. I mean, that, that's really what, it, it's such an artificial market. And by setting this up to where students can get their first two years of college for free, that this would actually force the colleges that are four-year colleges to compete. Because they would have to actually get people willing to go into debt or willing to spend their own money to come to those first two years there. And now the whole thing's... It's, it's very well written, and you can go read it for yourself, but I kind of want to point out that, that this is going to happen whether government gets involved with it or not. And whenever I post something like this, people are like, how would you like a doctor that went to you know correspondence medical school? Shut up, shut up, shut up. You know, people that say stuff like that, it's so moronic that the brain burns as though acid were being poured on it by anybody that uses their brain for more than eating, sleeping, shitting, and, and regurgitating what they've heard somebody else say. It really does. Because your two-year degree is your two-year degree. No one's going to go to freaking medical school online. And when you graduate medical school, you're not a doctor. You're an intern for two years under a practicing MD. If you think about all the places where people can really screw somebody's life up, There are, uh, there are things in place beyond your, your college or your law school or your medical school or whatever that are necessary before one is actually free to do things on their own. Architecture is another thing. You design a building wrong, it could fall down on people. Well, you can come out of school with a degree in architecture from the most prestigious school of architecture in the world, got straight A's, aced everything you did, and you can't just go out and be an architect. You have, to, you have to practice underneath somebody, I think it's for two years, and take additional exams and certifications, and then you get to where you're licensed to actually be an architect. Engineering, it's a very vast field, and there's a lot of different things. There's people that are engineers that never went to school, but there's, there's like civil engineers that are designing bridges, and there's additional safeguards in place. So this is, this is not relevant even when we look at it that way. But regardless, you know... Do I give a shit that my doctor, who, who came from Harvard Medical School, did his first two years through correspondence when he was like proving that he actually knew English, even though he was a straight-A student in, in, in high school for English, and, and just did these basic, these basic courses that everybody has to take? No, I don't give a damn. I don't care. Do I care that the lawyer I'm using for my estate planning did his first two years of college for free and massive open online? I don't care if he did four. I don't even care if he did his law school. If he can pass the bar... And he has a good reputation, fine. But even if you want to make the case that, that, that there's no reason not to do this. And the only thing that's doing this now is this belief system that somehow the, the government-guarded educational monopoly is magic. That it's literally what it, it's a belief in magic. That if a person learns something and they also learn it over here, and this place over here had a magical blessing of the state, that somehow the knowledge is more valuable than if it were gained somewhere else. It is actually a preposterous belief. You, you know, you can make a better case that Santa really comes down chimneys and delivers presents than you can that someone who learned um, French literature from self-study, has less value in their knowledge of French literature than someone that learned it at uh, a community college. I, I mean, in fact, it is most likely the case the person that did self-directed learning got more out of it because they weren't just ticking boxes and doing what was necessary to get a, a grade average. And with the universities now, they're, all of them are grading on the curve. So that doctor you're so proud of his medical school degree, right, he, you know, he, he might have been in a class where an 80 was an A, Just saying, I'm just saying. And do you know what you call 
the guy that graduates at the bottom of his medical class, gets through his internship as the lowest level intern, and completes that, doctor. Doctor, right? So, I mean, you, you got to realize that we, we, it, this is literally a belief in magic. That, that somehow the accreditation by the state is more valuable than the accreditation by a private entity. And what you're going to see is more and more people putting together private accreditation societies and groups. And they already exist, but most of them actually are kind of attached to diploma mills, to be honest at this point. But, but it's, this is changing. Because there's nothing right now from somebody, prevent somebody from doing the following. I'm going to set up Jack Spierko's accreditation society for mock uh, degrees uh, on the two-year associate degree level. I'm going to certify that, that you are good enough to have retained an associate's degree from your uh, community college. And I'm going to list all of the places that offer courses to make up your degree, and I'm going to provide guidance as to how to make up your degree. In other words, you need X amount of English credits, X amount of science credits, etc. These are the courses that work. This is where Princeton has theirs. The University of North Carolina has theirs, etc. Uh, you know, I mean, freaking MIT has courses. And I'm going to just say, here's all the stuff you can pick from, put it together. Here is how you will do your proof of work. This is where you'll submit it. And I will, for a fee, have qualified people grade what you've submitted. Now, a lot of it's just work, right? So we'll do an exam, uh, equivalent to, let's say, a college-level entrance program exam or CLEP test or something like that for most of this stuff. A lot of it can be automated. But what if the person looked up the answer when they were taking the test? I don't care. They're doing that in a lot of colleges now anyway. Okay? Uh, most of what people learn in these schools, they don't remember anyway. I guarantee you, if I take most of you that have college degrees and gave you an exam from your science or your psych or your English course from your first year, if you're 10 years out of school, you'd fail it today. Most of you. Not all of you, but most of you would. Some people like me probably pass it without having ever taken it. But it's not the point. The point is, we're, we're making a, again, we're back to a belief in magic. We're back to a belief in magic. And, 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 and doing that, and making everything open source, and I'll bet you I could do it extremely affordably, where I could get people that would be doing the grading for very little money, so that there's a very little cost associated with this, the student. Let's look at it this way. It, the associate's degrees generally are 60 credit hours, sometimes 80, depending on what their major is in your associate's degree. Let's go with the high end in saying it's $80, or 80, I'm sorry, 80 hours. And let's say having your, your, your final test graded by a qualified person that says, yes, this person passed, is 50 bucks. You, you pay for it as you go. You take the test, you pay a $50 grading fee. Okay? That's enough to pay somebody that's qualified to grade the damn test to grade the test, to have, actually have human eyes on it and review it. Uh, possibly do a great deal of it through multiple choice, like many of these are, but, but grade, you know, is this college level work with the, you know, essays and, and write-ins and things like that, or projects. So now we can produce a college degree for $4,000, an associate's level college degree, with, with probably more safeguards than is necessary. That is, you know, immensely customizable. The student is capable of customizing this degree to a level that cannot be offered by any single university. Because if they're heavily into science, they can use things from schools that are heavily into science, and they can use, you know, different courses to make up the body of the rest of the work that maybe not are available at their local schools. 
the person getting the associate's degree now might be listening to the best teacher at the University of North Carolina for that level of course for that particular field of science. But maybe they want some level of economics in it because they actually plan on going into some sort of a, a biotech future. So then they can get the best economics professor at that kind of 101 level from a business school. Now, what community college can offer that? And the answer is none. So they, this can actually produce a better product. And it produces a product because it's adjustable to the student. Now, this is just using actual college the way it's done today as though it's the best we can do. Now, what happens... When we start having people creating individual certifications, degree programs, etc., that are sort of like what is already being done for Microsoft and Google, etc. They're creating these, these nano degrees so that a person can walk into Google on day one and do a specific job. People say, well, that's so specialized. Well, if it specializes your ass into Google, you're going to get plenty of diversity once you get there. So I just don't want to hear that nonsense. But that person can complete that degree in six months. Well, what happens when people start developing, let's say, a certification for a special technical aspect as an associate's degree and take really smart people and go out and harvest from the mocks that are out there already the best of the best and then develop specific content to go along with it that may not be accepted by, you know, University of Texas or Texas State when you go to transfer into your um, your upper class, your junior, senior year in college. Maybe they don't accept them. Maybe they only accept parts of it. Maybe they don't accept any of it. But it doesn't matter because that company's going out and marketing to large technical firms, hey, this is what we're producing in a graduate. Or says, you know what, we don't even give a damn where you're going to get a job. We're teaching you how to do this stuff because we're going into the, the like basically the 10. The only thing holding people in, in employment right now is health care and restrictions placed on employers with contractors. Because we're, we're rapidly moving to a place with decentralized autonomous organizations where you don't need a company or a boss that you would traditionally think of. That people just do work on a project basis. Well, if you're doing that, nobody gives a damn what degree you have. All of this stuff is propped up by bureaucracy. I want you to think about how it works. So I have Jackco. Let's say Jackco is a traditional large firm. And it's made up of about 500 employees. Big enough that I have a dedicated HR department with more than one person in it. Okay, And I have you know executives that think they're important that sit around a table in suits and ties and, blah, 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 and talk. And, blah, blah. and I've got down to low-level people. I've got the whole gr grommet of, of, of you know modern uh, corporate America. Now, all the decision makers in this organization generally have degrees. Most of them spend a lot of money on them. And they spend themselves all day long convincing themselves that they're necessary. So they create a bureaucracy inside a private organization that specifically says, you have to have a degree in business administration or related, you know, uh, from a four-year university to qualify for this level of job in our firm, no matter who you are. Well, yeah, this is a belief in magic. This is Because I can show you people with that degree that aren't capable of doing that job, and I can show you people that don't have any degree that are more capable than most of the people you have working for you. But it's a belief in magic because they've bought into the magic because they're part of the little magic world. And some of these guys in their 30s are still paying their student loans, even though they're very successful. 
or they're looking at their their budget in their life and they finally paid off their student loans, but they're realizing I spent over two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars interest included to pay for my education. It must be valuable. So the magic fake facade is is there. But as you move into a place where, well, what does the market want? And smart entrepreneurs that aren't wasting their time with traditional education models are putting together DAOs, again, decentralized autonomous organizations, and saying, this is the product I want to take to market. Well, when someone applies through that decentralized organization and says, well, I can do this part, and the way it works is as you complete each level of proof of work, you're paid piece by piece by piece, And since everything's on a blockchain environment, nothing you do is ever lost and everything can be traced back in history. If you go away, if you die, if you quit, if you don't work out but you did good work up to a point and you've been paid for that, someone else can come in and pick up right where you left off with a complete train of what you've done up to that or trail right to you've done up to that point. Why do I want an organization like a Microsoft now? Now, Microsoft's good at what it does, but if it's developed the next great software product, How can Microsoft compete with someone that that's the set agile? And these types of organizations, whether they're full decentralized organizations or semi-decentralized organizations or small startups, are going to start turning more and more to the people that have not put themselves into debt. One, because they've proven that they can think outside the box. Two, they generally will have a better understanding of what's actually going on in the world. Three, they can afford to work for less. Don't underestimate that. They can afford to work for less. What's your debt? I don't have any. Well, you can afford to work for less. That doesn't mean they'll always work for less, but that means they can start for less. They can get in the door for less. This whole world is, this is just one piece of this. And the state will eventually move to this model because it will be drugged there kicking and screaming, because if it doesn't, it's going to get out-innovated. This is what I don't think people understand about where we are in 2017. There are so many institutions of the state that have been held onto with tooth, fang, and claw, like some beast hanging onto it, for the last 50 years, as technology really is, I mean, if you look at the technology over the last 100 years, yes, but it's the last 50 years that technology has not just evolved to where things can be done faster and smarter and cheaper, but that technology has evolved to where it's available at the fingertips of the average person. We're on equal footing with what we can learn and develop and know and share and, and experiment with. And we've now reached a critical mass of this where the ability of the state to be the beast that it is and hang on like a lion trying to hang on to like a cape buffalo is, is just being exceeded. The, the cape buffalo, think about it this way, lions do kill cape buffaloes. It's hard to believe, but they do. And it usually takes like a, you know, a, 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 a pride of lions to bring down an adult cave buffalo. But imagine that that pride is stagnant and aging and getting older and older, and there's not having cubs. So the new big males aren't coming to kick out the older, you know, tired males, and the females as well are getting tired, and they're getting tired. But somebody's been feeding the cape buffalo steroids and has been selectively breeding the, the cape buffalo. Selecting out the biggest males and females, the strongest, the most resilient, the toughest, the ones that fight the hardest, and selectively breeding them for generations. There will come a time, even if you don't have weak lions, if you selectively bred the Cape Buffalo at a scientific level, 
for survival against lions. There would come a time when the lions couldn't keep up anymore. And no matter how strong or powerful a lion is, he can no longer bring down Cape buffalo as a species because the species has evolved where his has remained stagnant. And this is, this is the state versus technology today. The state cannot adopt technology at the rate that the individual can. The state cannot adopt technology at the rate that companies and organizations can. The state can't. The state is the very definition of bureaucracy. Therefore, it must move slowly. That's good because I don't want the state adapting as quickly as the individual. Because that's how the individual ends up completely subservient to the state. The state has said such monopolistic advantage such technological advantage and such a, a, an unlimited budget advantage over the individual for so long, it's become complacent like the lion. And it doesn't understand the selective breeding of the Cape Buffalo. It doesn't understand that it's fixing to go up against Cape Buffalo that also have claws in addition to those terrible hooves that are twice as big as that they used to be, that are faster than they ever were that are more coordinated and more individualized than they ever were. They can move as individuals or they can move collectively. That's what's happening with de de decentralization. You and I can be competitors today and allies tomorrow and competitors the next day because we had one place that we wanted to align ourselves. Bureaucracy can't do it. It's impossible. Bureaucracy can't stay aligned between two departments across the hall from each other. And everybody's fighting to move up in the bureaucracy. We're in a decentralized organization. Everybody's fighting to do better for themselves. And if that betterness means going it alone, they go it alone. But if that betterness means working together, they work together. Whether it's education or delivery it does, or innovation, it doesn't matter. And the days of the state-based education system are rapidly coming to an end. It's so hard to believe. And when I say it, I know some of you are like, man, I just can't see. Well, could you see the Soviet Union falling apart in 1985? If you had eyes to see and ears to hear, the answer is yes. But no one believed it. Not even the people in our highest levels of government. But people understood it was coming. People knew it was coming. You know who really knew it was coming? Soviet Union itself. That's what I'm saying. These institutions know their days are numbered. They're going to take some stab at this, but it's going to be too little, far too late. It really is. That's why they have the mocks now. But the, the innovators will use their own feeble attempt to evolve against them. Quite judo-like. really is. Let's take another one. This one comes from John Adam, who's been doing the song selections for us for a while now. Uh, John says, uh, more Californication. Finance.yahoo article, and uh, the article is, Here's how much you have to, be, have to make to be considered low income in San Francisco. Pretty short, so I'll read the article before you can give you some thoughts on it. In the United States, a family of four is considered low income if it makes about $24,000. In San Francisco, however, a, a family of that size is now considered low income if it makes $105,350. That's according to San Francisco's local news station, Crone TV, which reports that a family of four in San Francisco earning more than $100,000 a year can now qualify for affordable housing from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, and local HUD subsidized sources. The income limits in the Bay Area are the highest of any in the country, HUD Regional Public Affairs Officer and Homeless Liaison Ed Coberta tells Crone TV. 
Uh, other nearby regions are also hit hard by high cost of living. Salaries that qualify families there as low income would place Americans squarely in the middle class elsewhere in the country. For example, Santa Clara County is about $84,000. Contra Costa County is about $80,000. For Napa, it's $74,000. And for Solano, it's $64,000, according to the station. Crone TV reported... <clears throat> Earlier this year, the lack of affordable housing, even for people making what would seem like a good salary, has driven some San Francisco residents to live in cars. In Santa Clara County, a recent survey shows more than 6,000 people in the country or county are homeless. County, 6,000 people in the county of Santa Clara County are homeless, and 23% of them are living in their cars, vans, and RVs. <clears throat> Elaine Sanchez, who has been in that situation for six years now, can't share a home with her husband of almost 40 years. Instead, they each have their own RV and live side by side. She tells Crone TV, it's a space issue. We're living, not camping. The situation has gotten so bad in the Bay Area that some of Facebook's engineers reportedly asked their boss, Mark Zuckerberg, for help paying rent. Some of Twitter's employees earning $160,000 feel like they're barely scraping, scraping by, according to The Guardian. Okay, there's a couple reasons I chose to share this one with you. The first and foremost is right now there's a huge PR campaign by the left to hold California up as a shining example of success. This proves it's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. What I'll do is I'll take a look at median salary and say, look how great California's doing. Well, it doesn't matter. What you make doesn't matter. What you keep and what it can provide for you is what matters. I could say I'll pay you a salary of a million dollars a year. You say, holy shit. But I'm, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mythical salary, right? So I'm going to send you to mythical Jackland to make your salary. Okay, still, a million dollars a year, pretty good, huh? Yeah, but see, the median cost of a home in, in mythical Jackland is $10 million. So that's like having a $100,000 salary and having the median cost of a home be $100,000. It's exactly the same. Steak, pound of steak in mythical Jackland is, is, is $1,000. How are you feeling about your million dollar your year salary right now? If you have to live in Mick, Mick, uh, in Jackland to get it, right in magical Jackland to get it. So I, I ask you, how committed to staying in these counties in California do you think companies like Facebook and Twitter really are when it starts to impact their bottom line? If you think there's been an exodus from California so far, just wait, because. That, that, that young person that's making 160 grand in California to work for Twitter might say, no way, man. I'm not moving to the Midwest. There's no way in hell. I'm not going to live in Iowa with the corn boys or whatever. And maybe he won't. But somebody will who worked for less and will have more. Because I can move those operations for Twitter and Facebook to places like Dallas, Texas tomorrow and pay people 50% less and they would have 50% more. I mean, it's just it's just mathematical fact. Median price for a three to four bedroom house in Dallas, Texas, right now is under two hundred thousand dollars. There's a lot of stuff that's one hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty, but it's hard to get right now because it's in short supply. But you know, you can rent a place for thousand bucks a month, twelve hundred bucks a month, nice place, and that's expensive for Texas. You know, if I used a place like Weatherford get just far enough outside of Fort Worth and Dallas proper that you wouldn't want to drive there every day, prices just drop and availability goes way up. Yet I have all of the infrastructure that I need. I don't need to be in San Francisco to find top talent in, in social marketing. you got to be kidding me. These companies went there in the beginning because it's how you made it. Now that they've made it, you know, how committed are they to staying? Now here's what's more important. 
We think of companies like Facebook and Twitter as cutting-edge new technological companies. They are rapidly turning into the old guard. Now, no one's unseated Facebook just yet. But if you think it's not going to happen, you're wrong. It will happen. The only thing propping them up right now is when somebody really starts to get moving, what does Facebook do? Facebook runs in and buys them out. Instagram is an example of that. Instagram was never really going to you know, get past Facebook, but it had something Facebook didn't, and it had a way of innovating and capturing market share. So Facebook just grabs Instagram. Google grabbed YouTube. Google, Google paid way more than YouTube was worth because they had so much money. The government was talking about turning them into a mutual fund because they had too much cash on hand. So they paid something like $9 billion for YouTube. Years ago, when it wasn't worth anything, by the way. But it had something they did. It had Because Google had played around with Google Video, and YouTube was just beating its brains in. So that's what supported these companies. But again, let's go back to what I was just talking about in the last segment. We have groups forming around decentralized autonomous organizations that have innovative ideas that want to move faster and more creatively and give people more of what they want than a Facebook or a YouTube or Twitter, that are trading on independent stock exchanges based on blockchain currencies where people can go in and actually buy the currency that will work within the virtual world being created and be rewarded simply for holding it or being, being active in that community. And if Facebook tries to do that, they have to go through the Federal Trade Commission and the FCC, and it's now you're soliciting them. But this world that's a Wild West right now, the government, I'm, I'm going to tell you this too, people think, well, eventually they'll crack down on all that. They never will effectively crack down on it. Because the innovator will always move faster than the bureaucracy. By the time they actually think they've cracked down on it, they'll crack down on Bitcoin. Maybe. And people are like, Bitcoin, that's my gold. That's my gold. You know, I said I was going to cover that this week, and I, I didn't see the question when I was queuing stuff up, so I'll cover that right now. I've been asked, like, because Bitcoin is slow compared to other cryptocurrencies and stuff like that, and it's run into some problems with the blockchain, do you think it still has a future? I do. So I think what Bitcoin becomes is the gold of cryptocurrencies. It's the gold. It's not the thing that you spend a lot of. Think about it this way. When you buy gold, how, how long do you hold it before you sell it or spend it? And the answer is a long damn time for most people. Unless you're trading in like the, you know, the ETF market or something like that. If you go out and buy an ounce of gold today, odds are the next year you'll still have it. Why? Because you bought it for a store of value. Okay? So what I see people doing with Bitcoin is as their Bitcoin goes up in value occasionally, Going, you know what, I'll take a thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin out and I'll buy this new cryptocurrency or I'll, I'll put more in Ethereum or I'll use it for uh, buying into this new venture or being part of this new, this new super node or something like that. Um, but basically holding it because the long, here's the thing about Bitcoin, right? And it, it just plays into all of this with these companies in California and people being willing to move and stuff like that. So there will only ever be 23 million Bitcoins. Right now, I think there's something like 11 million have been mined. I don't know. It doesn't even matter, right? But there's less mined every year. That's how it works. And it goes on for like a freaking 100 years or something. So imagine if 10% of the United States, which is 30, just 10% of the United States, 30 million people decided they each wanted one Bitcoin. And it's the cryptocurrency that went first. It's got the proven track record. It's got a first mover advantage. And it's still more innovative than anything else. In the, in the regular world, 
It's more innovative than the banks. It's more innovative than Google and Twitter and Facebook combined. It's still open source. It's still being developed. The problems are still being solved. And everything that could be done to it was done to it to kill it. And it is stronger now than it's ever been. It's worth A Bitcoin is worth more than an ounce of gold right now. It's fake. You want to keep believing that, you go ahead. I know it spends just fine. That's why I take it as payment, okay? And I get very little people buying MSB and Bitcoin, honestly, because nobody wants to let go of it because it's deflationary, okay? This all plays into this stuff. Now you have a global private banking system. Do you understand that that's what cryptocurrencies and this technological innovation actually is? That does even more than that. But just that alone, that if I want to create a, a financial tool for the blind, with open source, I can build a wallet for blind people for Bitcoin tomorrow if I have the ability technologically to do it. How long would it take HSBC to do that? Right? Or, or Bank of America to develop, like, how many committee meetings would they have to have before they decided, do we do it? And how do we make sure we're in compliance with the federal government says we're supposed to do? And, and Bitcoin can be done tomorrow and it can have trust immediately because of the system. These types of innovations are going to completely disrupt even the things you think of as new media. And when people can say, we're not going to set up in San Francisco. We're not going to set up anywhere. We don't care where you live. We care what you can do. You live where you want to live. Because how many people that work for YouTube or Twitter or Google or whatever, that live in these expensive areas of California, if they could make the same money and live somewhere else, just might find they're not that addicted to the place. They use how much they like the weather or whatever it is, or the cool people, or the, 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 the swimsuit bodies, or whatever the bullshit is. They use it to justify staying in the job that they want. But give them portability and watch what happens. Again, disruption to the education system, the economic system, the banking system, the governmental system. You're living in a shift period that's like nothing else that's ever happened in human history. I mean, it's, it's beyond anything you can think of from history. And just wait, because we're just getting started. Let's take another one. I found this one interesting, and I'm not picking on the person asking the question. I just think that, like, are you really getting it? Do you get what I've been teaching for the past nine years almost now? We're going to be nine years old this June, by the way. It says, Jack, I came across this YouTube video and was wondering if it is correct. Now, the problem is that Ben did not include a link to the video, so I can't watch it. But, here's, but I get the point. Google, Google's overt censorship of YouTube operations is well known. But now Google is using a form of covert censorship on the comment section of its videos as well. It seems that if the algos, dis, algos meaning algorithms, disapprove of your comment, your comment will not be seen by anybody but you. Jack, the freedom of speech is very important, but no, it's nothing without the freedom to be heard. It doesn't matter if anyone listens or not. It's the principle of the matter. Discourse between people is one of the most important tools to resolve conflicts. Without discourse, conflict will be sure to follow. God help us all. Thanks for your time, Ben. Forum member A. Pawn. Okay. Ben, freedom of speech does not apply to Google. Google is not a public uh, service. Google is not paid for with public money. 
Google can do whatever the hell it wants with its properties, including YouTube. It can take down my videos and say that it doesn't want them there anymore, and there is nothing that I can do about it. That's why part of my uh, my digital uh, estate planning is I have all of the videos that are on Google housed elsewhere so they can be uploaded to some new place if I ever had to do it. Okay, And Google is not obligated to allow your comment to be shown or seen by anybody. Now, I have a problem with it if it is what it sounds like, and I'm not, I've not been able to verify that it is, if it's done truly covertly. In other words, I make a comment, I think my comment's been seen, but my comment hasn't been seen. Um, so I can see it, but other people can't. Now, Facebook does this. And let me tell you how Facebook does this. Facebook does something, let's say I have a troll. And when I delete your comment as a troll... Um, you know because you can't see your comment anymore. So on a not, not a group and not your personal page, but on a Facebook page for a company, if you, somebody puts a troll comment on there or something rude or obnoxious and I don't want it there, I can click remove. But when I click remove, they'll still see it and so will their friends. So if YouTube's doing something like that, it's a little bit different than the way you describe it. I'm, I, can, I cannot verify anything just yet. So what does that do for me as a business owner? That lets me try not to completely ban a troll so he doesn't go create a fake account and come back and keep causing me problems like an adult child, which I'm telling you, being someone that's in the public, public, public scene, I have dealt with my share of adult adolescents. And by the way, they're all, they're all guys. They're all guys in their 20s to 30s, and they all do the square root of F all in life. But they'll do that, and it's a problem. Because if they're putting things out about you that are untrue or false, or they're insulting your people that follow you, it's wrong for them. So by do, now, I don't do it. I don't use that tool. When I like, you can only be seen by them and their friends and all the bullshit. Banned. I get rid of them. But it's my content. I have a right to do that. It's Facebook's platform. They have a right to give me the ability to do that. So this is what might be going on with Google, where people are just conspiracy theorizing. Okay, hey, I hate to use that word, but you know, it happens especially in our world. Everything somebody's out to get us. I put up a video one time and it turned out to be a video I really should have put up, and so I took it down and I, I found out there was a huge discussion on Facebook that the government took it down. I, I'm not going to explain any more than that, but like all that happened was I took the, gov the the video down. The government didn't do it. It was up for like 10 minutes and I took it down and went, eh, maybe I don't need to put that up." Okay? Um, some of you actually know the video, you know, something really bad or anything, but it's just one of those things that could cause problems for you. So, like, the government did it, you know, or YouTube did it, or, you know, what? no, I did it because I decided it, I didn't want it public, okay? So, that kind of stuff happens. So, one of the things that happens on Google, uh, YouTube, I'm sorry, that I know of, is that you'll make a comment, and I think you can see your comment at first, but if you come back, you won't see it. I think that's how it works. And what will happen is you've used a word or put a link or something. And when I go back to check that video, it will say, some comments are awaiting moderation and might be spam. Click here to review. And I'll click that and review your comment. And it'll be like, learn to make millions, you know, or something. And I'll spam. And they know that person's a spammer now. Or it'll be like, somebody just said, hey, that's a great video you have, Jack. Have you seen this video? And because of that, YouTube thinks it's spam. And if I don't get around to approving it, you think it hasn't been approved. I don't have a problem with it, but you know, when you get a lot of comments at all, you don't always catch every one of those. So that's one thing that could be happening. Here's another thing that could be happening. I haven't seen it lately, but it went on for years, and I'm, I still don't fully understand what's going on. Sometimes I'll get a comment held in moderation. 
the, the, the box to click to approve the comment is not there. It just isn't. I can't approve you. I can delete your comment, or I can leave it sit there in purgatory, but I can't approve it. The explanation has been that those are commenters using whatever the hell this means, the old commenting system. I think that means they do not have a Google Plus account. Because now to do everything you can do with YouTube, whether you use it or not, you must have a Google Plus account. And the two must be linked. I've done that just to get out of YouTube jail. Okay, But I never use my Google Plus account. But I do know I get comments that are coming through Google Plus because all my YouTube content's going on in Google Plus. I don't do anything. I don't even know how it gets there. I don't care. Okay, So that could be happening. You could be making comments. You could think that's the case because no one else can see your comments but you. But all it is is it hasn't been approved or it's in some kind of purgatory. Let's say it's exactly what it sounds like. Google has said, we're not allowing comments with these words in it, or whatever the hell it is. Google is a private company. Okay, I know they're publicly traded, but they're a privately owned company. You can publicly purchase their stock and become an owner in a little piece of their private company. They have the right to censor anything that they want to censor because it's not a public resource. It is a private platform, just like my website. I get people all the time, Jack, you deleted my comment. You're supposed to believe in free speech. Well, here's how free speech works. You go say what you want to say with your property and your resources or the resources of others that are willing to further your agenda, your viewpoint, your attitude, your personality, whatever it is. And if someone comes from the government and forces them to stop, that's an infringement on your freedom of speech. You come to the survivalpodcast.com and post the link like a lot of people did in the beginning because it's in survival. So they thought, well, he must be cool with racism. And you post links to the most racist white supremacist forum on the Internet. And I delete your comment and I ban you by IP from my server. I ban you from my, my forums. And then you go on a tear and yell and scream that I violated your freedom of speech. I'm sorry. If you go to our page on our policies, you can read... Your free speech does not apply on my private property. Any belief that your free speech applies on my private property is only an illusion. Just because Google's a lot bigger than me doesn't change that. If you're going to act because Ben, you say you're worried about principle. Well, the principle at stake here is: Does the owner of a property have a right to decide what it's used for, how it's used, who uses it, and under what circumstances it's used? I say yes, even if I disagree with them. And if Google goes too far with this with YouTube, eventually a competitor will rise up and take over. I've heard from people, we're starting something up and they're embedding you know, videos from Vimeo or something. No. What's going to, to, to circumvent YouTube is going to be a completely new innovative platform that's going to do things that, that YouTube just can't do or won't do or refuses to do. And trying to build YouTube blue or something like YouTubular or something on the concept of we're going to be all guns and rednecks and whatever, or we're going to be all right-wing speech, or we're going to be all extreme left-wing speech, which Google censored as well, or we're going to be the anti-YouTube, will not work. It will have to actually be compelling. Because why is YouTube so successful? Because people you know, forward a whole bunch of videos of babies farting and blowing you know, baby powder out of their ass. That's why. That's why they have so much power, because it's, it's so used already. So just like Google couldn't supplant Facebook by making, you know, Google Plus and making circles instead of friends, okay? Just, just like they couldn't, a company as big as Google couldn't beat Facebook out with Plus. With all the resources, all the stuff they have. 
Because neither one of those companies started as the bohemists that they are. They started as agile small groups. It will be an agile small group that actually builds something that surplants this. And they will. Again, our problem is we think companies like Google and Facebook are new companies. In the world we're in today, they're old. How old? They're General Motors old. You know? They're, they're, they're General Motors old. They're, they're, they're not quite to the level of, you know, they're not as old as J.P. Morgan. They're not as old as Cigna, right? Or Jim Beam, right? These, these companies that have been around since the 17 and 1800s or the Hartford. Um, but they're General Motors old. They're Ford Motor Company old. That's how old they are. Now, the difference is, when you look at something like Ford or GM, there's a lot of bureaucracy to enter the world of building cars. There's almost no bureaucracy into evolving beyond where we are as social media today. Because we created a whole... Remember, I've been talking about virtual nations forever. They're already here. We just don't understand the framework yet. We're still working that out. Because people can do things now that were illegal 10 years ago, and the government can't touch it today. They'll go after one person, turn them into a scapegoat or something like that, but it can be done now in a way where there is no scapegoat. There is no one person. And it's only going to move faster from here. Again, the world is shifting faster than it ever has. Yet, well, there's some of the stupidity that's just holding on. We save this one for last. This does come from the United Kingdom, but I don't think it's far away from coming here, too. Here's what it, This is from Robert. Robert says, Doctor's warning about the difficulties in pitting avocados, wanting warning labels on each piece of fruit. It's amazing how many injuries they are treating now that avocados are a major food fad and the foodies have no idea how to safely handle their cutlery. Well, it's not just a cutlery thing. Avocados are one of the things that people cut themselves on more than anything else. And there's, there's two big ways they do it. Uh, they go to cut into it, they get through the tough skin, and they, they're holding in their hand, and they cut through the avocado into their finger. And the other way is once they get the avocado open, they don't know how to get the pit out, and they try to use the knife to pry the pit out, and they stab themselves through the bottom of the avocado. Both of these, of course, are easily remedied. Uh, one takes an avocado, places it on a cutting board, and cuts around the pit with their hand held at the sides and the blade pointed down, or you can turn it sideways. But you cut around the pit, you twist the avocado apart, you take your knife, you tap the seed with the knife, The, 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 the big giant pit attaches to the knife. You use a knife, you twist the pit out. You take your thumb and your forefinger and you push the pit off the, off the knife. Um, I've heard enough about this now that I think I might do a how to cut an avocado video for the, for the YouTube channel. If nothing else, because people are searching for it all the time anymore. Um, which seems to be more of a solution than putting a warn, warning label on every piece of fruit. Now, let's talk about... By the way, there's a link in this article. You can read it for yourself with these doctors that want a warning label. There's a link to another article where a, a, rest, a, a London restaurant banned avocados because of fear of their employees hurting themselves, where this can all be taught in two seconds, how to do this properly and safely. By the way, there's a lot of other things that people cut themselves on regularly. because Bagels are probably the number one food that people cut themselves with. But generally, bagels are done with a serrated knife. You feel that a little more. You're a little less, you know, you stop. Uh, a little quicker, where an avocado is usually cut with a sharp, straight edge, and you can go straight in before you realize it. Okay, so there is all this, but let's let's take a look at the actual problem for a second. Is this a problem? 
Because there's so many times the government wants to fix a problem, and there is no problem. Like, there's nothing to be done, just let it take care of itself. No, this is a problem. Some of these injuries are life-altering. You think of cutting yourself on the finger. Cutting yourself on the finger is one thing. Cutting yourself into the joint and going into the cartilage is another. Damaging a nerve. Um, I did a review in the past of these gloves called No Cry uh, Cut-Resistant Gloves. And I suggested that people that do a lot of cutting, a lot of kitchen work, especially new to it, don't have their knife skills developed, get a pair of these gloves. Because I know three people who have changed their lives forever. One was a musician, two were physicians, and all three cut themselves in ways that they were no longer able to continue their careers. Both of the physicians were surgeons. And because of nerve damage, they were unable. One was a, um, what do you call it, a doctor that takes care of uh, women and uh babies and stuff, a gynecologist um, that, um, like his main practice was tying fallopian tubes and doing that surgery and, and just could not do it anymore and had to sell it to his partners. So you can seriously injure yourself in these basic kitchen things. And there is, this is not made up, there's a legitimate spike in the number of people seriously injuring themselves Cutting avocados. So we've established there is a problem. That doesn't mean that we do the doctor's solution, but there is actually a problem here. But as is typical, this is the response. Let me read a part of this article. The British Association of Plastic Reconstructive and Aesthetic Surgeons, for example, has called for warning labels to be affixed directly to the skin of the fruit, kind of like a PLU sticker, along with instructions for slicing them up. The safest way to do this, the site notes, is to lay the avocado horizontally on a flat surface, place the hand on top of it, and slice the fruit horizontally. By the way, that is not the safest way to do it. That is still more likely to cut yourself than vertically down. I really do need to do a video on this. Uh, then twisting the avocado around so separating the halves. Then to remove the pit, wrap the fruit in a heavy towel and place it on a sturdy countertop. Chop down on the pit so it's stuck in the blade and twist to remove. That is all ridiculous, by the way. So the people that have the solution don't even know the best way to safely... This, that is so overkill, which is what government always does. Let me go back to the article. Of course, it's anyone's guess how a single sticker plans to explain that. Quote, we don't want to put people off the fruit, but I think warning labels are an effective way of dealing with this, uh, reiterates Ickles. Perhaps we could have a, cart a cartoon picture of an avocado with a knife and a big red cross going through it. Okay, so the solution always from people that think within the system is to force this on people and, it, and thereby pass the cost of whatever these stupid stickers cost to the people buying the avocados, who are the idiots that don't know how to cut an avocado in the first place. Like, there's no way for the free market to handle this problem. It's, it's you know, my roads. Well, well, government, who would possibly build the roads? My schools? We, we need schools. Like, we can't build a flat thing and educate people without the state, right? As, as preposterous as that is, it pales in comparison to the fact that a food that's become a fad that's being consumed by millennials who never learned kitchen skills cannot have a free market solution. That we can't just provide a way for people to learn how to cut a freaking avocado without mandating something from the state. Because if you're going to say you want warning labels, you're literally saying you want the state to do it. Now, let's follow that to its logical conclusion. What that means is you want to use proxy violence of men with guns to force people in private businesses 
to, to charge more for their product by spending more to deliver product, a product that's been delivered for centuries with no need of the solution that you've decided to impose. And yes, it is the threat of violence at the point of a gun. Because what happens if one of the large avocado providers says, this is stupid, we're not doing this. Well, they'll send a freaking SWAT team, a, a freaking SWAT team into their facility to arrest them. I've seen it done for freaking lobsters in the wrong packaging coming in from Honduras. And it, they, they, they put the guy in jail because the lobsters were in the wrong package, and they raided his facility with a SWAT team. So that's what you're asking for when you say, well, we, we need a warning label. So is there any way that you people can think of out there in TSP land that we can solve this problem without mandating a warning label? My wife told me one of the morning shows recently had it on. Even the, the Hollywood media said, we think that's about a bit much. So we're going to cap, they didn't say this part. We're going to capitalize on this hysteria, uh, to get eyeballs by having Martha Stewart or somebody show you how to cut a freaking avocado. Okay. And like, if we just show people how to do this, they'll be, even Hollywood can figure out that this is stupid. But I guarantee you, if the measure comes up, all of a sudden they'll sport the ass clown that wants it done because we think of the children. They'll be, this is where we are in the world. But this is why. This is why the bureaucracy can no longer compete with the innovation and the next level of humanity. Because that's what it is. They can't. They're worried about putting a warning label on an avocado while teenagers and 20-somethings that are fed up with the establishment, instead of marching in the streets, are building global public-slash-private banking systems that the existing system can't touch. Okay? Let that sink in right now. They're out trying to hold on to an educational system that's decaying and rotting and has become a parasite on the market that it's supposed to serve, i.e. the students, saddling them with a lifetime of debt with a degree that has depreciating value over the years. You're financing a depreciating asset in the form of a degree. And... There are innovators out there developing tailor-made specific educational platforms that can be delivered anywhere in the world with an internet connection. And if you keep drawing the corollaries and the parallels, you'll see this at every level. From the direct corollaries, a banking system trying to figure out how to do blockchain without it being decentralized. That's like trying to make dry water. Okay, While the thing they're trying to emulate poorly is already seven generations replaced. Or you've got people developing that, that, that banking system while your government's trying to figure out how to put warning labels on an avocado. How can they keep up? How can you possibly expect the institutions of today, both public and private, that are operating on an old paradigm to keep pace with the new organizations that are literally rewriting the paradigm Annually, if not semi-annually, if not quarterly. The paradigm is shifting faster than it ever has before. Each new innovation is allowed, and people are, are growing up with this technology in their hands from the time that they're old enough to comprehend a screen. And they're going to bifurcate into two types of people. Those that follow what the state screen tells them to do, and everybody else. And as bad as it seems when we look at the millennials 
and the, the college students of today, let me reiterate what I've tried to say before. These morons are the minority. They're the loud, screaming, shrieking minority. The majority of people in that demographic do not have time for that shit. The majority of students, even going to the hellhole that is UC Berkeley, do not have time to be out in the street bitching and crying because Milo, Stephan, whatever the hell his name is, Snuffleupagus or whatever his name is, is going to be there. Or Ann Coulter or whoever else. They don't have time for it. They're busy studying so they can pass that exam for that degree that they're going to overpay for. But at least they're there. But increasingly, these young people are coming up, and teachers are starting to tell them the truth in high school. Start to say things like, oh, you can get a degree in that. Do you know what it pays and what it's going to cost? Because maybe you should do that cost-benefit analysis. Oh, shit. I'll never get my money back. Hmm, maybe you should think about another way to do that then. And they're going into this world of innovation. You're going to have kids showing up for kindergarten that are beyond where second and third graders are over the next few years. What does the state do with that? Throw them all in gifted? Or do they, do they I mean, come on. See, there's the, the, the totality of what I'm telling you. The majority of the world, including our nation, is one flavor or another of socialism. We happen to be neo-fascist, is what our economy is, which is a form of socialism. It's a nationalist socialist, okay? But a much more sophisticated national socialism than, you know, Italy or Germany used during World War II. Far more sophisticated, but it's still what it is. Socialism is reaching its logical conclusion as it's outpaced by technology. And ironically, even the father of modern communism, Karl Marx, didn't quite get it right, but his basic premise was that technology would actually replace the need for the state in time. We just needed a state monopoly to guarantee that it was going to occur. That's the basic core of Marxism, that eventually no one would have to work anymore because the robots will do all the work, even though they call them robots yet. The workers would seize the means of production. The means of production would become technologically innovative, and then the workers could sit back and kick back, and everybody could get a fair share. That, that's, the, that's Marxism in, in a nutshell. Well, almost not quite. People always need to be involved to move, move humanity and society forward. And that technology is not just eliminating the need for the quote-unquote dictator of the proletariat, which is what Marxism promises. The dictator of the proletariat will go away eventually. Just never does. Just doesn't quite work out that way. But the technology that's innovating is replacing the need for the state, and the state itself is a dictatorship of the proletariat. Exciting times to be alive, folks. Exciting times to be alive. Just make sure you're paying attention because you're going to get steamrolled if you're not. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And I want to remind you that one of the ways you can help support the work that we do at the Survival Podcast is to do your online shopping through tspaz.com. You'll be able to go there and click on a link and see the Amazon deals of the day and see if there's anything that you fancy there. And if not, you can just do your regular shopping on Amazon. You can also see our reviews of the day, and I have a good one for you today. This is a long show, but I think you'll like my ending story today because it's personal. It tells you about a family member here at the Spearco household in Nine Mile Farm, Lucy Lou Spearco. Who is Lucy Lou Spirico? Do I have a new grand? No, Lucy Lou, for many of you who already know, is our dog that we adopted in the fall last year. So Lucy Lou, when we saw her out in the street, we looked at her and said, hey, is that a shepherd dog? Like a pup? Because she was so small. And uh, we eventually got with the neighbor, and we decided we would take her in. My wife said, we should just go get her. 
And I don't argue with stuff like that. When my wife says something like that, that's her gut, that's her instinct, I trust it. Bam, Lucy Lou's becoming a household member. So we've, you know, had some stuff out about Lucy on the YouTube channel and stuff like that. And uh, we've had a lot of you guys trying to help us figure out what Lucy Lou is. A lot of people said she's got some kind of shepherd mix in her. And a lot of people said she looks like a Kelpie. And when I looked up Kelpies, there's short-haired and long-haired Kelpies. When I saw short-haired Kelpies, I'm like, she might be a Kelpie. But I have for you guys today reviewed the Wisdom Panel 3.0 Breed Identification DNA Test, a DNA test for your dog. It's 80 bucks. It's pretty simple. You take these little things, you stick them in your dog's mouth, you twist them. The instructions tell you how to do it. It's not, it doesn't freak them out like I thought it would. I mean, when we had to do Lucy, I was like, she's going to pee on the floor because she's a submissive urinator, and she's going to freak out. And I thought Charlie would when we did him. And both of them just kind of sat there like, what are you doing? So it was easy for us. You put them in a thing, you mail it in, and it takes about two to three weeks before you get your results because this is a very intensive DNA test. Here's what I found out about Lucy, and this is why you might want to do this with your mixed breed. My Lucy Lou, who everybody thinks is a, Kepel, a Kelpie or a Shepherd of some sort, is 50%... Siberian Husky, 37.5% American Stafford Terrier, which is almost a pit bull. They're basically a smaller, breed, smaller bred pit bull. The American pit bull was out of that line and designed to be a larger dog. And 12.5% Dalmatian. Now, when I saw that, I got the results this morning. I've been waiting for the results so I could put out the report so you could see what they look like and all in a PDF for you guys to look at. Um, I, no. And then I went, oh, that's that makes perfect sense. She's fast as lightning. She looks like Shepherd in build somewhat, but she's very light. Dog is lightweight, man. She's got that life build that a husky has. And she's vocal. I'm talking when she doesn't get what she wants, like like that. Alright? She's better at it than me. Obviously, she's a dog. Do you know who used to do my dog goes have been around a long time? Lakota. That was what Lakota did every day. If you wanted to treat, if you wanted love, if you wanted out of the house, if you wanted you to pay attention and you weren't, right? that's what she does. Huskies are vocal that way. She climbs fences. Huskies, God, trust me, I know, she climbs fences. Basically, she has these short-haired breeds, and now that I know what she is, I look at her, and what I see is a short-haired Siberian Husky. Her hips, her butt, her tail, the way she stands, her build, her cut, everything, it's obvious. Give her longer hair and give her blue eyes. And you go, that's a husky. Pretty one, too. That's what she is. Now, that's interesting to know, but what does this mean for me? This means that my instincts have been correct, and it would have been better to know right away. I should have done this. I said, I said, I've been saying we're going to do this for months, and I finally got off my butt and did it. She's a husky. That's, that's her primary thing, because that's what she's got the most of. So, huskies are on or off. So, I've trained her to not eat my birds. I haven't even thought about it, because the way she's acting... But I've, it's always been in the back of my head to train her like Charlie, where I can use her to move birds. Can't do it. Ain't going to happen. Somebody might be able to do it. I'm not going to try. Huskies are on or they're off. You switch her on and you tell her to go after those birds, she's not going to control. She's going to attack. And they can be friendly and happy, but when they go after some, our husky look how to kill the cat. Got along with cats, fine. We brought a new kitten into the home. He seemed like he was being playful with it. Quick, dead cat. And we had to work on that so it wouldn't happen again before we brought a new cat in and it worked out. But happy-go-lucky dog, never attacked anything in his life, picks a cat up, kills it. And you know a cat can fight back. Nope. Boom. So I know now that breed characteristic. I know she's going to be stubborn. 
that it's not just my weakness in training. I know that breed's characteristics. I know she's smart, but she's only going to do something when she decides it's what she wants to do. So I have to train her in a way that makes her believe it's what she wants to do. Where, you know, Charlie is mostly bird dog and pit bull. Both of them have a very high desire to please. Max is a German shepherd. Nobody needs to test him. Same thing, desire to please. Huskies have a desire to please themselves. And there's a lot of other characteristics of the breed in there. She does have some Stafford in her. That courage that I see inklings of, I know that's there. I know to encourage that now, to bring more of it out. I never saw her get aggressive in any way. My, 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 uh, my bee mentor, Jason, came over here. He didn't even have the veil on. He just had the half bee suit, like the, the jacket on. Man, she was circling him. She was growling. Her tail was up. Never seen her like that. He was out of place. That's in her. So I know I can work on her and help her be more of an asset with Charlie guarding the front gate. I just have to work on that. I know all these things because I know her DNA, and it's fun and it's cool. Here's another thing. Thanks to you guys, I now know about a gene that I didn't know anything about. It's called the MDR1 gene, and it is a mutation in some dogs that makes them have serious uh, consequences if they take certain medications, chief among them ivermectin, which is the medication in heartworm medicine. Now, I will, next time I go to talk to my vet, because I'm going to have the, the throwdown with my vet about this whole bullshit with testing the blood every year to re-prescribe the heartworm medication when the dog's never been off, and I've verified with four vets it's unnecessary. Okay, So either we're going to do that, or I'm going to put them on ivermectin myself like we talked about. Uh, but I also want to know, how come you guys are so quick to put these dogs on heartworm medication without doing this $35 test for the MDR1 gene when you can kill the dog? And there's a whole list of med It's not just ivermectin. It's like 10, 15 different medicines and derivatives on top of that, of those medications, that can be very seriously life-threatening to your animal if he has this MDR1 gene. This kit includes a test for the MDR1 gene. Lucy doesn't have it. I assume Charlie doesn't because he's been on ivermectin for his whole life. But that means that every dog that I've ever put on heartworm medication, where we've tested them for heartworms to make sure they're heartworm negative and put it on them, if there was any potential for them to carry this gene, that I risked their lives when I gave them that first dose. And I've never been advised of that. Well, if you want that test done on your animal, it's $35. Bucks. Well, for $70, bucks, you get it plus this whole thing. So I think it's a great deal. You can find my write-up on it at the blog or at tspaz.com. And remember, you always support Survival Podcasts when you do your online shopping through tspaz.com. All right, with that, let's talk about today's song of the day. Um, this is a song I really never listened to, I never really heard. And it's a protest song, specifically a protest song against the actions in the Gulf War and the aftermath and the nation-building in Iraq. It's called Holiday, and it's by a band called Green Day. Let me tell you what uh, John Adam, who found this for us, had to say about it. Um, he says, The overthrow of Iraq was not popular with many Americans. I think what kept the protest level down was the fact that people weren't being drafted to fight in it. I do remember a draft being suggested from time to time. I looked up some information on this song, and what I found is that The whole holiday concept, like that's how we say vacation in, in America. And actually, Green Day has a lot of British sound, but they are an American band, um, from my knowledge anyway. But holiday, right, kind of playing off the British thing, holiday. It's like taking a vacation from this crap because it's so insane. And they talk about how, in this song, how easy it was to, to get people revved up for a war that didn't really affect them um, for a lie. And I think now we know that was a lie. I think we do. I think the, the, the whole line from George Bush about the world is a better place without Saddam Hussein being his ass covering after the war is irrelevant to why the American people signed on to the war. Weapons of mass destruction that were not there. They just weren't. 
Um, and I think that there was plenty of reason to believe they were there based on posturing by Saddam Hussein, but I think our government knew they weren't there. That's what I believe now. And uh, so there's that. But it also picks on the left, too, about how the left just basically sold out and wasn't really willing to actually stand up against it. There was more money on the other side of the protest line, I think, is the line in the song. So that's interesting. But I'll tell you this. In, in this time period, I was very pro-war. I considered myself by this point a small government libertarian within the Republican Party. I hadn't totally gone over to full libertarianism yet. Uh, I was still voting for the R over the D. But I, I was making that, that bridge. But in my head, I was like, I, I know what the Middle East is like. I've seen this. And these people, bad people. Saddam Hussein's a bad guy. I bought into that. And I believed, like I think many Americans did, that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And my, I could see the Middle East falling apart. I could at least see that. And I thought, well, what if this stuff gets in the hands of people? And you're, you're revved up from 9-11 still. It's only a couple years out. It was easy to make that case. And I think that if you've evolved to the point where like you are anti-war, which... Kind of makes sense to be anti. Like, who the hell is pro war? And if you're not anti war, you're pro war. You get that, right? Like, who the hell says, you know what I want? I want war. Well, that'd be great. But that's what the, this is the mentality they get people into. But once you've made that step over, it's important not to, you know, ridicule and, 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 and talk shit about the people that haven't because you were probably there at one point, too. You were probably there at one point, too. What I consider myself now is anti war and skeptical of any reasoning for war or the use of force on anybody. However, if I have a compelling case made to me that the safety of my people, my family, my life, my nation is truly at stake, that attack is imminent or ongoing, then hell, we'll defend ourselves. I just have to look at all the bombs we've dropped since the end of World War II and realize that We dropped bombs more years than we didn't. A lot more years than we didn't. It would dumbfound you to look all the years from 1945 till 2017 that we've dropped bombs. I think you can count the number of years we didn't drop a bomb on somebody on one hand, two tops, in that period. 70 years. Okay. I wonder how many times in those situations when we destroyed property and lives that we were actually defending ourselves. And I think the number should be considered an embarrassment. And the reason I tell you that I didn't always think this way is to buy credit with those of you who still do. I'm not some pinky commie lefty that grew up in a family that was out protesting everything under the sun, that just thought peace man and all war is wrong. I'm an adamant defender of the right to keep and bear arms. I don't even invoke the Second Amendment there. That's just one more reason for it, okay? If you try to kill me, I will kill you back. I am not a pacifist. And if I really believe that my nation was in danger by an outside force, I'll pick up a gun to this day, even as an old fart, and I'll defend it with the risk of my own life. But damn it, I'm not killing somebody until it's necessary. And when the how that became a radical idea is a tragedy. And I'll tell you how. It's the state. It's always been the state that's been willing to sell us on murder. So if protest, protesting war is not your thing, 
try to look at it through a new lens as you listen to the song, which I'll even admit to me, not exactly my favorite type of music. But I think the song is as valid as today as it was when it came out in 2004. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.